Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Now, before we get into it, we just want to give a huge, huge thank you to all our supporters on Patreon. It means so much to us to see people out there voluntarily contributing to our creative effort, this podcast that we love so much. So thank you so much. And if you're not a patron and want to consider it, please check us out on Patreon. We put all kinds of fun bonus materials onto our Patreon feed just for our patrons. For example, recently we put up a video of Bean and I getting high for 420 and talking about some of the fun stuff we've been up to, including all of the videos we did for Willie Nelson's birthday. So lots of bonus materials on our Patreon Thanks so much to everyone who's already supporting us. And if you're considering it, we would love to have you. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually still a little bit high from our patron-only 420 smoke out. <laughs> and it was, you know, a good 10 days ago. And if you don't have it in your pocket right now to support us, that's totally cool. You could do something like just tell a few friends about the show. Help spread the word. That helps us a lot as well. 100%. Even if you can help us just spread the word on this show and spread the gospel of weed as we like to do, we would truly appreciate you. All right, so we've got a fantastic episode for you today that addresses a huge question for anybody in America who cares about weed. Is Joe Biden going to legalize or what? Yeah, I mean, we get into some big issues on this show, uh, economic, uh, social justice, and of course, history reflects all of these. But right now, the biggest issue, at least in the United States, for weed is that question. We have a president who has historically been anti-weed, mm -hmm. who has historically been a major proponent of the war on drugs, mm -hmm. and who was just elected in part by people who love weed and want to see these arrests end. And it is all coming together in Washington, D.C., Right now, we have a very closely divided government, but there is more momentum to end weed arrests in the United States than there ever has been before. And we have a guest with us on Great Moments in Weed History who is absolutely our man in Washington, D.C., the most weed-friendly member of Congress. And uh, slight spoiler alert, and this says a lot, he doesn't smoke weed, <laughs> so the most friendly congressman in Congress still doesn't smoke weed, but has been having our backs for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Representative Earl Blumenauer, Democrat from the great state of Oregon, who has worked on cannabis reform for nearly 50 years. That's half a century, and we thank him for all of his efforts. He was elected to the House of Representatives in 96, and he has been behind cannabis reform ever since. He is the guy who released the first congressional blueprint on cannabis policy back in 2013. He founded the Congressional Cannabis Caucus back in 2017, and he co-wrote the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. We have a really fantastic conversation with Representative Blumenauer right here. We touch on all kinds of things that are relevant to you if you are a weed smoker in America. This is going to be great. I got a fatty rolled up right here. Bean, how about yourself? I've got one ready to burn as well. Uh, 
Representative Blumenauer, we know you're probably not going to smoke along at home, but for everybody else, if you're not quite with us, that's cool. Just hit pause, take your time, roll up a joint, split your blunt, pack your bong, dab your dabs, because when you come back, we're going to be ready for another great moment in weed history. Representative, I want to welcome you to Great Moments in Weed History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We are great admirers of your decades of work on the issue of ending cannabis arrests and moving towards a system of legalization. So a huge welcome from us. And if you can maybe start by telling us how this all started for you 50 years ago what made this an issue uh that you wanted to focus on in 1972 according to gallup polling only 15 percent of americans thought cannabis should be legal what, what were you doing at the time and what made you look at that as an issue that we can win i was a uh, child legislator um in uh, oregon and there was an effort uh, that dealt with decriminalization generally. You remember uh, back in 1973, it was uh, illegal to be a, a, a chronic alcoholic. There were drunk tanks. We locked people up. Uh, and an effort to uh, decriminalize uh, people who were alcoholics, this popped on the radar screen. And it was fascinating for me to be part of that conversation uh, because it was clear that cannabis actually was not a serious threat. There had been activity at that time uh, where the movement uh, with the certified smart people was uh, that actually it was uh, not as dangerous as tobacco. Uh, so why are we uh, going to prosecute people? We had uh, just had sort of a, a youth movement in the Oregon legislature uh, I was 23 when I was first elected. There were a number of people in their 20s um, and we were doing environmental issues, but this popped up on the radar screen as something that really deserved attention. And it was interesting because it had a broader range of interests. The gentleman who carried a bill that would have legalized two plants for personal consumption was in his 60s, he was a Republican hog farmer from Eastern Oregon. Uh, and it was, it was just fascinating listening to him uh, go through uh, the range of perfectly legal substances like alcohol and tobacco that killed people and were dangerous and were highly addictive. And it was, uh, it was a fascinating discussion. Um, in fact, if we had had the people who voted for the legalization be joined by the people who voted against legalization but smoked dope, Oregon would have been the first state to have uh, legalized adult use back in 1973. But as it was, we decriminalized. It sparked for me a, an issue that I has never been very far away because I have continued to be struck by the difference between what the formal policy was 
and what it should have been. I, I know in the 70s, there was a feeling this could happen rapidly. Did, did you have that feeling it was going to be five years away or did you anticipate uh, half a century of, of work on this? No, I, I truly thought that the case was compelling. Um, I thought that the momentum we had politically would continue to build. Uh, and I thought that it would have been something that would have been uh, resolved in a decade or less. What I didn't anticipate was the ferocity of Richard Nixon's insidious war on drugs, the cynical effort to weaponize opposition to cannabis, making particularly young black Americans and others of color pay the price. And of course, it was also directed at young people. And then we ended up with uh, Ronald Reagan and Just Say No. And as you mentioned, in terms of the survey research, it, uh, it was pretty grim time. People had unrealistic expectations and fears. And we also had an awful lot of people politically and practically that were invested in fighting this war on drugs. And even today, uh, you saw in the early uh, weeks of the Biden administration, uh, several people uh, were terminated because of past use of cannabis. Well, that is a manifestation of how deeply embedded these policies are throughout the federal government. And so through that era, when obviously within government, there was this really negative and largely incorrect view of the actual dangers of cannabis. How did other lawmakers, your colleagues, look at you for being somebody who is championing cannabis liberalization? Well, there were two tracks. Um, one, uh, there were uh, a few people who agreed with me and uh, who would vote, um, but there were uh, other folks who were intimidated by the process. They either uh, were concerned about the political consequences for them, uh, that they would end up being soft on crime or you know, not supporting of law and order, or that they were themselves dopers or drug dealers. And there were others who actually believed this nonsense, uh, who really believed that uh, Cannabis is a gateway drug that would uh, lead to uh, serious consequences. I mean, uh, milk is a gateway drug. I mean, people drink milk and then they end up doing, you know, strange things. I mean, it's just uh, serious. <laughs> it's arbitrary. Uh, well, it's it's just, it, it's bizarre. It is just bizarre. And it uh, and it, it is uh, deeply ingrained. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where you try and take people through the facts and it it takes them a while to get there well i do want to note one thing on this on this podcast uh and i i do believe you will not be joining us but when richard nixon is mentioned we light a joint <laughs> in defiance well whatever it takes <laughs> burning away his lies you know would it be that easy yes uh, the cold dead hand of richard nixon well, well, he could take our joints from our cold, dead hands. Uh, but you alluded to that soft on drugs 
uh, charge that was so chilling for so long in this debate when it came particularly to elected officials who have to run, have to be elected. And as I said, when this view, uh, when this policy was uh, polling in the low 20 percent, that was a very courageous stance. As I see it now, we really have changed the conversation about cannabis, uh, but that deference to authority whether authority is right or wrong remains ingrained in our society and the propaganda that underpinned that system uh, seems to still pervade our society. So do you see cannabis as emblematic as pushing back against larger problems in our society? Do you see it as a metaphor for things like personal liberty and a skeptical view of authority? Um, perhaps. I mean, it's um, part of it is just denial of reality. Uh, people have difficulty uh, being able to understand the dynamics, to appreciate the damage. I mean, we've, we've severely damaged a million young black men's lives. Uh, we have uh, turned this into an assault on black and brown Americans and particularly young people. Uh, it, you would think that it ought to be a metaphor for personal liberty, uh, for science, uh, for being able to deal with the beneficial aspects of cannabis. I mean, this is something that has been known for humans for millennia. Uh, people have been self-medicating uh, for aches and pains. They, they use it for, in terms of uh, spiritual activities. Um, and it's, it's really quite fascinating uh, that so many people are in denial. But what I found exciting is that that is, um, that that is now, I think, has been reversed dramatically. Uh, this genie, so to speak, is out of the bottle. Uh, there's an economic aspect. This next year, state legal cannabis uh, is going to approach $20 billion. And as you know, we have had billions of dollars of transactions mm -hmm. take place illegally. Uh, but it's now something that people recognize, they embrace, and they're willing to push back. So far this year, we've had three states accelerate their state legal activity legislatively. New York, New Mexico, and Virginia. Uh, it's, it, yeah. is, it is just remarkable. Yeah, I mean... As a person who's definitely contributed about a billion dollars to that black market, I mean, I, I definitely can acknowledge that it exists. Uh, but I would also like to ask you, you know, a big issue for us uh, is what is driving the change, not only in public opinion, but in government among lawmakers? Is it the criminal justice aspect or is it the economic aspect? And, you know, to us, if it's the economic aspect, you end up with situations like, people are still being arrested for the same crimes that others are profiting off of. And the fact that that could be what led us here, it sort of pollutes the uh, you know overall potential for cannabis to really heal uh, socially and economically. So how do you feel about where lawmakers stand on that? Well, I think it is, uh, a, there is a convergence of activities here. Part of it, is criminal justice. I mean, this is one of the most rank 
areas of discrimination, blatant discrimination, selective enforcement against people of color, particularly young. Uh, all the research indicates that these young people of color who are arrested at three or four or five times, depending on where in the country, it can be much more frequently than white Americans. This is such a blatant injustice at a time when there is a cry for racial justice. Uh, this is one of the primary drivers. The other just deals with the reality that people have had with their ex personal experience. There are 4 million cannabis, medical cannabis patients in this country. Uh, there are 20, 30 million people a month who use cannabis. Uh, we have had uh, more than 97% uh, of the American population be in states where some form of cannabis is legal. And people see that when that happens, big cracks don't appear in, this, in the earth, rocks don't fall out of the sky. Uh, you know, life goes on pretty much as it did before. Yeah, just with more napping. Unless people are getting arrested. <laughs> people understand that the, the big lie on which uh, the prohibition of cannabis was built uh, is simply that. It's a big lie. They have experience. I mean, I just yesterday talked to a new Republican member of Congress who told me about their personal experience having been in a serious accident a few months ago and not wanting to use opioids and ended up microdosing and how, how it worked perfectly for them. I mean, these are stories that we all are aware of. Virtually everybody knows somebody who has a positive experience with cannabis, either in terms of the health implications, what they've seen in terms of the economics. Um, it, is, it is something, uh, the, the children with extreme seizure disorders for whom only cannabis brings relief for the torture that their children uh, are, have to endure. I mean, these are things, the racial justice, the actual facts on the ground and the personal experience that has brought us to this moment in time. Absolutely. Well, we, we call this uh, podcast Great Moments in Weed History because despite all of the oppression of cannabis users and the cannabis community, we also see ourselves as a resistance community with a lot to, to bring to the table. And uh, as I thought about a great moment in relation to your career and your work, I saw two things. The formation of the Congressional Cannabis Caucus and the day that you wore a cannabis mask uh, to the floor of Congress. And I will say in a time when the idea of representation is, is rightfully in the air, as our community, uh, that was twofold. That was one, this caucus showing us that we are represented by our elected officials. Uh, and then culturally, um, I know, I don't know if it felt like a big or a small act to you, but to a lot of people who have suffered under these laws, who have felt marginalized in their own country uh, and targeted in their own country, 
Uh, that was a great moment. So I want to say thank you. And yes. So how 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 did it get to that? When did you realize it had gotten to that point that uh, you could represent this culture and this movement in those ways? Well, I've never felt uncomfortable uh, being a little bit out of the mainstream representing Portland. Uh, Portlanders uh, can be a little quirky. There's a famous bumper sticker, keep Portland weird. Um, we've done lots of things in terms of everything from animal welfare to uh, uh, major drug reform. You, you know, we passed the psilocybin uh, initiative yeah. this last year so that there'll be controlled research for therapeutic purposes. Oregonians voted to decriminalize drug use, that we're not going to lock people up for nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, the rest of the country isn't quite there yet, uh, but these are things that I think Portlanders, uh, in terms of transportation, environment, social policy, culturally, so I've never felt uncomfortable supporting that. Having a cannabis caucus was a symbol that this is a serious mainstream issue. And so being able to form it, to recruit people to be a part of it, and to systematically work together like we would on any other serious issue uh, was a natural outgrowth. Because make no mistake, this is a serious issue. This is a matter for some people of life or death. Uh, the more that we are able to have people take advantage of medical cannabis, um, it's transformative. I can't tell you some of the heartbreaking stories I have heard from families about uh, their family members uh, literally being saved because they had access to medical cannabis and not be involved with uh, the opioids that are addictive and deadly. Um, the, the notion of what we have done uh, for black and brown Americans um, who, as I mentioned, get, get prosecuted far greater rate than other people. And for them, being on the wrong side of the law can mean they can't live with their family if they're in public housing or they lose access to uh, student loans, um, uh, veterans benefits. Uh, and so being able to make that point that this is a serious issue and we're gonna treat it seriously like we would uh, transportation or agricultural policy uh, made sense. And I'm, and I'm glad we did. Yeah. I got to say, Representative Blumenauer, that it's very heartening as a brown-skinned American to hear somebody in Congress actively repeat that, you know, this is at the crux of the war on drugs and of the unjust, uh, you know, enforcement of cannabis prohibition. So thank you for that. Definitely really appreciate it. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to our show appreciate that as well. And on the topic of psychedelics, right? So Oregon has done something really progressive. Uh, and, you know, we see that other places in the country are starting to open up to it. Socially speaking, a lot of people are opening up to the idea of psychedelics as a psychiatric medicine, right? So, and we've done an episode about how uh, the history of Santa Claus and Santa Claus imagery uh, in our culture is actually very inextricably tied to uh, psychedelic mushroom spiritual practices from centuries ago, from Central Asia. So 
We'll send you a link to that episode if you want to hear more about that. But what do you think about the potential for psychedelics to be legalized broadly in the United States? Where are we in that battle? There hasn't been the same propaganda campaign against cannabis, but there's still a lot of misconceptions and probably a long way to go. Where are we at? There was uh, a pretty aggressive uh, campaign against it. Uh, As you know from your review of history, uh, that we had the Department of Defense, the CIA. I mean, the federal government did a lot of this research. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were early indications uh, that this had therapeutic benefits, but it got uh, caught up with uh, hippies, uh, acid trips, Timothy Leary, and, uh, and it was included under the Controlled Substance Act, discredited. And frankly, some of the folks who were involved with it were themselves didn't uh, appear to take it seriously. It was more of a lark or, uh, you know, sort of an idiosyncratic activity. What we've done in Oregon uh, with that ballot measure, setting up uh, the opportunity to deal with it in a controlled and therapeutic, very professional way, I think is the first step to be able to better understand. Um, So we need more shamans is what you're saying. I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, to, uh, to learn from past practices. Uh, we need to do this research. Uh, it's, it's, it's long overdue. And again, uh, dealing with it as just simply being prohibited, uh, thinking that it's going to go away, um, that genie is out of the bottle as well. There are people uh, have access uh, to these substances. There are uh, some uh, powerful evidence that it uh, that there is there is therapeutic benefit, and there are things that people uh, want to explore on their own. I'd rather do it in a controlled and thoughtful way. I think Oregon is starting down that path, but it's part of a larger reassessment of our policies um, dealing with uh, dealing with drugs generally. I think an important thing to note in in Oregon right now. Uh, as you say, there's this path to explore the potential of, of uh, well, psilocybin to begin with in a controlled and therapeutic setting. But we've also removed the criminal penalties for people who are simply possessing or using. For people who are in possession, not people who are dealing. And those sanctions aren't going away, nor should they. I mean, we need to do these things properly. Yeah, mushrooms should be free. I think we can all agree. Yes. <laughs> well, let's look at. Uh, <laughs> let's move to the current state of play for cannabis at the federal level. We have a very closely divided government, uh, but there is a lot happening uh, in Congress. And then, of course, we'll have to talk about the president and how. Uh, Joe Biden will or will not affect this progress. Uh, But I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of a state of the union, uh, catch people up to what is happening in Congress right now with cannabis. And from our perspective, it's not just will cannabis be legalized or decriminalized, it's how will that happen? How will those rules be written? who will be at the forefront of lawmakers' minds when those laws are created and implemented. Because on the one hand, there's been this huge decades-long grassroots push 
to overturn this very uh, damaging system of prohibition. But now there is parallel to that a very strong push from very powerful lobbying organizations who want to uh, make a lot of money um, off of cannabis. And those two forces uh, do not see eye to eye on everything. And a cynical view of government uh, would certainly indicate that the people with the most capital tend to get their way in a system called capitalism. Um, so, so where do you see things right now and what's the future? Well, we're in the midst of a revolution. You referenced earlier in the program that it wasn't too long ago uh, when more than uh, two to one majority was opposed just to cannabis. Those attitudes have slowly been changing and they've been driven by activists and citizens at the grassroots level. It's also uh, been involved with people who want to commercialize it. Um, so there's this, this mixture of people who have decided that because the federal government was sort of locked in place with this stupid war on drugs and the prohibition, they decided that they were going to go ahead and work at the local and state level. And over the last 25 years, we have watched that progress. It started in California with the statewide initiative to legalize medical cannabis. Uh, in Colorado, before their state legalization, there were uh, ballot measures at uh, the local level, sort of building the case and generating the momentum. And then that groundwork that the activists laid, as I mentioned in Colorado, the, the local initiatives, culminated in 2012 with the first successful campaign at a state level to legalize. At the same time, there was a similarly successful uh, campaign for a different proposal in the state of Washington. Those two passed in an election year with a higher turnout, about 55% of the vote, and the dam burst. Uh, Oregon followed actually in a non-presidential year with an even bigger percentage, Alaska, and it built from there. It created reality on the ground, and one by one, the states fell in line. This was, this was still technically illegal at the federal level. And we had state after state after state starting to legalize medical and adult use. This is something that has generated from the grassroots and is really, um, and, and it's not that there aren't some powerful forces and there isn't some big money, um, but it's, it's more of this area where the, the federalist system, uh, states' rights, local control, built uh, a successful momentum and it carried with it uh, broader public acceptance, I think, than if somehow there was just an effort to, to do this at the national level. I mean, look at Mexico. Uh, Mexico has not been able, uh, despite the national uh, change in law, uh, it hasn't changed public opinion in Mexico. And it's been slow to roll out. Here, it's accelerated because so many people have been involved. And I think that is the strength of this movement. Um, and when we superimpose the economic, the health, and especially the criminal justice, um, there's no stopping the momentum now. The issue is 
exactly how to do it because it is complicated, because we have to unwrap things at the federal level. We have problems with taxation. I mean, the prohibition on medical, uh, on cannabis research um, handicaps us. And that's probably more of an answer than you wanted, but this is in fact complex. And it, we're having unprecedented momentum in Congress, but there is a lot to untangle. Last Congress, we approved the Moore Act, which would completely legalize. We approved the Safe Banking Act overwhelmingly and passed a research act. But now we have to start all over because they uh, died in uh, Mitch McConnell's legislative hospice. I am optimistic we're gonna make more progress, but people should not mistake uh, that this is not going to be easy. It is complex and there are lots of different places where there can be disagreement. Some people want to accelerate the legalization to do more and do it faster. They don't want incremental steps. Others uh, are, you know, well, let's, let's just take care of banking first or let's take care of research. So those conflicts are real and they pose problems for a complex political system. Where do you see the next major step in this process in Congress and I think I just want to kind of go back to the idea of when you are weighing input from citizens, from advocates, from medical patients uh, versus from this nascent industry, how do you uh, create a law that is going to, at its heart, be a social justice law and not a law to create profits for industry? That is uh, a, a complicated issue uh, because there are um, major economic interests that are involved right now. Uh, there are also uh, different competing interests in terms of some people think the best solution is just to get this puppy legalized, get it out there uh, and allow uh, it to grow organically, so to speak. There are others that uh, want to have a stranglehold until they get what they want. And there are different opinions that people have. So that's part of the challenge we have now is to keep the progress going and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, for that matter, to be the enemy of the okay. I want there to be progress. Uh, the Banking Act is, um, is serious business. Uh, there have been over a hundred robberies last year for cannabis facilities in Portland. There was a, a gentleman who was killed. Uh, there's been violence across the country because people are sitting on tons of cash. There ought to be a sense of urgency to solve this. I'm happy to work with anybody in the Senate, the House. Uh, I co-sponsored a dozen bills and written probably a dozen myself, but we're dealing with a fractured political system and it is narrowly divided between the House and the Senate. And we have an administration that is not quite as enthusiastic as we would like. Um, so this is a work in progress. Uh, we're building the plane uh, while we're trying to figure out how we land it. And, and on that, I mean, you know, I think that where President Biden stands uh, really illustrates the disconnect between 
the people who govern and those who are governed, right? You know, we see that across America in all age demographics, right? Even 65 plus, a majority of people support medical cannabis, cannabis liberalization, uh, you know, uh, an alleviation to, to all the arrests. So how do we account for that? You know, we as a country are recently healing from the absolute depths of being represented by somebody who is, you know, opposed to these sort of basic human rights that we see as inherent to being Americans, right? So how do you account for that? I mean, look, we are pro-cannabis people, right, as are many, many people across the United States who just use their right to vote in order to support change and progress and positivity. And yet this one really crucial issue for us is completely misunderstood by the absolute top of this pyramid, right? Where does that leave us and where do we even go from there? I mean, I know there's people who have tried to convince their parents and grandparents uh, that cannabis is legal, but they're so under the influence of the decades long propaganda campaign that it doesn't seem possible to change their minds. How do you feel about it? Well, first and foremost, we can legalize cannabis in Congress. We don't need the administration to sign off on it. Congress has the power to do that. Congress has the power to break the bottleneck for research and to be able to have the Safe Banking Act. And we're well on our way to build majorities in both the House and the Senate to do it. President Biden was part of the Obama administration that was confronted with state legalization of adult use. And the Obama-Biden administration made a decision that they weren't going to get in the way of it. There was the famous Cole memo, right? Oh, man. Uh, where the deputy attorney general laid out the Obama-Biden position, which was as long as states followed their own laws, the federal government wouldn't interfere. And that was and is critical. And I don't think President Biden has a different position than Vice President Biden and President Obama had. I think you're seeing evidence that he is reconsidering some of his past practices and, and beliefs. And I think he has been touched by the cries for racial justice. The vice president of the United States uh, was our chief sponsor of the Moore Act in the Senate. And she understands this issue. So I think we have allies and movement. Thank you. I think to, to add to Abdullah's point, um, and just for the record, you know, we have to look at President Biden not just as somebody who seemingly doesn't understand this issue at this point, but who historically uh, has been a huge cause of the problem, who has been historically a leading advocate of the war on drugs and understood that he has changed on, on many of those positions. But another thing to Abdullah's point that we've come out of is an anti-science government. The science is so clear on this issue. Um, and so I think the level of frustration is in the hypocrisy of that from the top. Um, but my question to you is, is the feeling in Congress to pass the best legalization law possible or the best legalization law that Joe Biden will sign? The issue is to get the best legislation that we can pass. 
Uh, now, make no mistake, Joe Biden is not crusading against this effort. If they wanted to shut it down, they could have done it with the Biden-Obama administration. They didn't. They haven't gotten in the way. There is a, rea a realization of some of the racial injustices. I think there has been an acknowledgement of some of the cr crime policies that he supported 20 or 30 years ago, um, he doesn't support anymore. Uh, so I am uh, perfectly happy to be able for us to do our job, trying to get the best legislation passed. I think there is an, a realization within this administration that they need to change. And I think they are changing. Um, but what I said is we don't have to depend on this administration. This is something that Congress can in fact do and should do. So when you say you don't have to depend on the administration, is that from a feeling that uh, Biden will sign anything that is passed in Congress? Is there a concern of a veto? No, no, he's not gonna veto this. I'm quite confident that the, if Congress, if we can get our act together, because there are different people who have different opinions. I just went through it. You know, some people want to go incrementally. Some people want to uh, go full racial justice. Some people want to change how it's organized economically. I mean, there are probably 30 different opinions of people who are active in this. So Congress needs to get its act together and get a majority moving things forward. Uh, and when we do that, uh, I have no qualms whatsoever that the Biden administration, not only would it not veto it, they will sign it. No, right. no question in my mind. Based on your views and all of your lion-hearted battling for cannabis legalization, cannabis liberalization, which we all appreciate, and I'm sure your constituents appreciate, no doubt you have received a number of weed gifts. Now, we know you don't smoke cannabis. You're not personally a cannabis user. I'm just wondering how often and in what volume people try to give you weed and what do you do with it or what do you say in response to that? Long ago, people stopped doing that for me. Um, I've made clear that I, I didn't want people to be confused about my advocacy, that somehow I'm doing it because uh, this is something I want to do. Uh, I have received, uh, recently I've had a bunch of uh, cannabis masks. Uh, I've had uh, probably, I don't know, 25 or 30 masks that people have made with uh, uh, cannabis patterns. Uh, uh, AOC and I modeled them on the floor of the house this last week. <laughs> Lots of uh, hemp products. Mostly what I get is cannabis literature. My, my mail carrier has a double hernia with all the books and papers <laughs> that, uh, that uh, come my way of uh, people, uh, actually on both sides, it's, it's not all pro. There are some people that think they can convince me if they just give me this one uh, crazy uh, report. Uh, well, first of all, we should note to your mail carrier, if they're listening, uh, cannabis could be great uh, to treat that pain for the double <laughs> that was hernia. That's my first thought also. <laughs> uh, but more seriously, well, that's serious as well. But we want to thank you so much for joining us on Great Moments in Weed History, for all of your advocacy uh, now and in, for the, in the future. Uh, and to your point, I, I totally understand your point that you do not want people to view your advocacy 
differently uh, by viewing you as a cannabis user. I, I understand uh, the sacrifice I think that you're making for the last 50 years. And I'll just say uh, when that federal legalization bill passes, if that changes things for you and you want uh, to break the fast with us here on Great Moments in Weed History, uh, we will be right here with one ready for you or we will uh, come up to your office in Oregon with a collection yeah. of Hank, the best. at that point, you should just be our third co-host. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that under advisement. Thanks, awesome. <laughs> we'll take it Have as a Have a great baby. day. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you. Representative Blumenauer. Take care. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.